Welcome to Millions of Screens, IndieWire's TV industry-focused podcast. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined as always by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. On today's episode, we have an interview with showrunner, executive producer, and series creator of Watchmen, Damon Lindelof. Guys? Damon showed up to confront Libby about the dogs. Yeah, well. (laughs) Not only did he show up to confront Libby about the dogs, we then accosted him. With a dog. <laughs> with a yeah, dog. You, they, yeah. We did, you did ambush him we, with a dog. We, I can't believe I missed that. Yeah. Uh, and there's photographic evidence now that Damon's cool with dogs. This is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. All right. Well, so so now we're going to present the interview we did with Damon. We should note, we recorded this interview prior to getting access to the finale. So there aren't any really finale talking points within this interview, although Damon does kind of anticipate some of the stuff throughout. Yeah, he dropped a few Easter eggs within the podcast, which were were pretty fun. And we will talk about the actual finale once it's over as a group. Uh, right. Just kind of say goodbye to one of our favorite shows. How fitting that they're called Easter eggs. How fitting indeed. <laughs> you want to, should I ask my first real dumb question? Sure. Which one? Uh, do you want to watch the finale together? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Just, yeah. just, I can't just, believe that's the one you went with. There's so many here. Dumb questions. <laughs> this is like a lot. Let's all just pitch our finale theories. Uh, uh, like, no, I can't. I'm, I'm so bad at the theorizing. It just My favorite thing, and by favorite, I mean least favorite and most painful thing on the internet is the culture of these are the 14 questions that must be answered <laughs> in finale X whatever it is. And I know, I know that because they pop up in my Google search feed for any all things Watchmen that those articles are being read about Watchmen, but I haven't clicked on any of them because I know that like, I'm going to be like, we're only like seven to 14, man, that's not good. So I just I have the arbitrary sense of this, we're going to enumerate our satisfaction in advance is uh, is horrifying. You know, what is a great way to end around those articles is to just make the finale about Lubeman. I'm very comfortable spoiling this in advance of the finale. We're not going to tell you who Lube Man is. <laughs> ever, 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 God ever. That's so devious. It. I feel like so, that was the one thing that was introduced that the, the immediately that we care and about. everyone was just like, that's Petey. And, and we knew looked it. At it well, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not confirming or denying right, that it's Petey. I'm just saying we're not telling. I was worried when Nicole Castle put up her Instagram photos of that episode and she was like tagging people in them that she was going to give it away for whoever was behind the suit and i was like okay she's like that was that was a safety spot but yeah yeah no it's i think i think we can live without lube man but i i do think that's an interesting idea i feel like everybody who watches the show has a different idea of what questions they need answered and then when we come in to talk about it in the office, it's like some things we just don't even think about. Like when I write the review or, or we you know, post an article or an interview, people will bring up something where it's just like, oh man, I gotta know about this. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that was ever gonna come back or be revisited. And from the writer's perspective, I mean, do you, are you surprised by that too? Like, do you see those things pop up and you're just like, I thought it was pretty clear that we didn't need to worry about this. I thought we made this pretty clear that this was a one-off or something fun and then people became attached to it and now it's got a life of its own. I think you are literally asking that question of the least qualified human on the planet <laughs> to answer the question, which questions matter to I the audience I you might have most. thought about it a little bit. No, I think about it constantly. And I think that, you know, for me, the way that I am wired is that 
I, I don't ever want to know what happened to the Russian on The Sopranos. I don't. Like, if David Chase and I were having cocktails and I've never met him, and we're three or four cocktails in, and he just said, says to me, do you, want me to, do you want me to tell you? I'd be like, no, don't tell me. I don't, I literally don't want to know. And there are other people who it drives them crazy that they're never going to know. I think, like, I've come to believe that the more fundamentally important thing is that the audience is assured that the storyteller knows. Um, uh, the idea of just sort of like throwing out a dangling mystery with no sense of resolution, but the storyteller was like, oh, I don't even care. That's the part where people get offended. And so I can say that not only do I care, but there's a, there is a lot of intention behind the mysteries that we choose to answer and choose not to answer. And I've talked sort of ad nauseum about this list of ingredients that we all made in the writer's room. Before the, all the writers came together, I made a list. And then when we all came together, we we added upon that list things about the original uh, Watchmen. We call it the OT, the Old Testament, the original text, the graphic novel, the the original 12 issues. What They're all, um, uh, I think that uh, certain parties would take uh, offense at the graphic novel part because that's not how it was conceived. But um when you talk about those issues, one of the things that made it Watchmen was blank. So it was be an adjective and you'd say, oh, it was political. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, simultaneously trolling and revering the golden age. Um, uh, it was funny. Uh, it had science fiction elements, et cetera. So some of them were very broad. Some of them were very specific. One of the things on, those li on that list was at least one hero's identity never revealed exclamation point. In the original Watchmen, that was Hooded Justice. Um, in our Watchmen, it will be Lube Man. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It had to be. Right. It had to be Lube Man. But we just built an entire season around who Hooded Justice's identity was. So who's to say someone won't come along and make their season of Watchmen all about Lube Man? That will be the connection. I mean, could, yes. we, could we ask for anything more? In 30-some 30, 30 years, someone will come along and make a series where they finally figure out the backstory of the Loop Man. Well, they'll be so obsessed with that question, even though it's like, well, we didn't need to worry about it at the time, but that person did, and then they come back and yes. we'll see what I, they say. I would say there are strong indications as to the identity of, of, of Loop Man, in the same way that there were strong indications as to the identity of Hooded Justice. They turned out to be wrong, but but for us, there, there are supporting materials that lean into what I would assume is the popular theory of the day as to, as to Loop Man's identity. And it's you, Ben. Oh, wow. You are Lube Man. I didn't think I was allowed to talk about I think about there's it. a little Lube Man in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the expression that Libby just made. Again, that's why we need cameras rolling the yeah, whole time. Constantly. Yeah, we're Absolutely. Not, we're not doing phrasing anymore. Or... <laughs> <laughs> all right, boys. Should we start? Yeah, I think we're, now we're going to start. Think we're in okay. <laughs> um, well, since we're talking a little bit about, about, um, about comedy and about uh, references and about uh, things being tied in. I want to talk about American Hero Story. That's something that's been, been been sitting with me for a little bit, especially as we got into the sixth episode and, and beyond. First and foremost, just what was kind of your, and, and I'm, I apologize if this has already been, you've already discussed this because you've probably discussed everything, but what was the kind of the impetus of saying, I want to put a TV show within my TV show that chronicles the, this group of superheroes from the past? Like, why did you, what kind of motivated that is like, this is an essential element of something we need to discuss within the show. This goes back to that same list about what made the original Watchmen, Watchmen. And as we try to, you know, when you're, when you're, when you are uh, stealing uh, someone else's idea, um, 
there was an episode of Mr. Robot recently where um, where they're doing the origin of right, White Rose and IBM is pitching the Chinese government on we're going to come over to China and we're going to we're going to make some IBM chips and they're, the Chinese are sort of laughing about the idea of and we're going to take those chips and we're going to deconstruct them and then make our own um, and steal your IP and so uh, for Watchmen we took the same approach which is we stripped down its components. And then obviously, I, th I think we weren't so mercenary as to say we're going to try to copy Watchmen, but we want to take it apart like a watch and see what makes it tick. And one of those things was comic within a comic. And that comic within a comic book, if you're familiar with the original uh, Watchmen, was called The Black Freighter. And it wasn't in every single issue of, of, of Watchmen, but it was in most of them. And it ended up being a narrative and sort of thematic tie-in. It was about a guy who was uh, basically marooned as a result of a ship being sunk and he's making his way back to his family in david's town and he's quietly uh losing his his mind and this becomes uh sort of a thematic intercut and overlay for adrian veidt and the countdown towards uh shared armageddon and so for us we were like well what's our version of comic within a comic it has to since we're not a comic we're a tv show we should do a tv show within a tv show so what should that be? And we kicked around a variety of different ideas, one of which was a sitcom called By George that was about a family that was living with the clone of George Washington, um, uh, who had been cloned and was very beef, you know, he was very befuddled by modern times, which also made no sense in the premise because he wasn't time traveling, he was just a clone. So, but somehow, uh, and it was sort of like a commentary, a, a, like a political, uh, uh, a very bad sitcom that delighted us to no end. And it, we, uh, at certain points, we wanted Looking Glass to be obsessed with it. But then a new problem began to arise as we were conceiving the show. And that problem was, how are we going to do exposition about the Minutemen? in our show. If Hooded Justice looms so large and is such an essential part of our storytelling, how do we introduce the audience, both people who are Watchmen literate and people who have no familiarity with Watchmen, with the idea of who the world thinks Hooded Justice was? If we're going to ultimately reveal that Hooded Justice was a black man who had to hide his race in order to survive, um, uh, we need to we need to sell the audience on the fact that this in this alternate reality they believe that Hooded Justice was a white guy, and because they haven't read the original Watchmen, and so thus American Hero Story was born, um, and uh, it, it became a device by which we could do exposition as it related to their history, because in their world American Hero Story is more analogous to American Crime Story than American Horror Story. And by that I mean American Crime Story is like they do OJ or they do Johnny Versace or they're doing true crime with, you know, with dramatic embellishment. But that's what Minutemen is, which is if you if you live in the world of Watchmen, you're like, oh, yeah, there was a Captain Metropolis. Like there were the Minutemen. These things actually happened and they're just taking creative license with it i think libby and i both i'm a, a book reader or comics I don't reader read. uh libby <laughs> there's pictures libby <laughs> it's pictures with words yeah but i think one thing that we both really enjoyed is the sort of extra textual elements of what you you and your writers team have put together like pdpedia as an asset is sort of the under the hood of each episode so to speak were there any thoughts of like adding visual elements to that that just for whatever reasons didn't work out or it's just it's it's all text as opposed to say yeah video? you're i you're i think maybe the first person to ask that question and i maybe only obliquely referred to it 
in, in passing, but our plan was that every single episode of Watchmen would have a post credits, you know, 90 second burst of ancillary material that was told in a visual medium, like a, a documentary, like the, at, at the end of the pilot, there was going to be a 60 minutes intro with the tick, 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 tick. We could, and HBO was like, you can literally do 60 minutes of Joe Keen. So yeah, uh, he was going to be a character that we didn't really meet until the second episode when Angela shows up at the Crawford house, but we, you would have seen him in that first time. And, you know, he'd be walking around with whoever our version of, you know, Leslie Stahl is. Mm -hmm. And we'd, we'd set up that he w was an early front runner, uh, for, uh, the Democratic, uh, for the Republican nomination in a year when Redford was finally deciding to step down. So it was a bit of been a good conduit to, to do a lot of exposition. And we had some really fun ideas and even wrote like four or five of them. Yeah. Much and the then, same way as by George, you would have had an opportunity like here are all, are all the, the ways that media is consumed in our society to correct. You'd have whatever that version of YouTube is. Yeah. We, and we wrote a, a commercial for nostalgia, um, circa 2004 when it was on the market. Um, that was like a pharma ad that had all those crazy warnings at the end, like um, uh, in in that style. Uh, and well, the pamphlet made it yes. on the PDPedia. So a lot of those ideas ended up kind of going into the PD, uh, PDPedia. But the, but the very short answer is we ran out of time and we ran out of money. And HBO was essentially like, what's this going to cost? And where are we going to make it? And like, um, you know, we should probably focus on the show writ large. And I think like, uh, I, w I was explaining to them, it's so important to have these ancillary materials. And they're like, but post credits, we like to do BTS and, you know, and, 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 and to HBO's credit, the other problem is that we kept running right up against time, you know? So the idea of like, I'm a pretty firm believer in hour long dramas shouldn't really go over the hour mark unless you like, in, unless it's absolutely essential to the storytelling. And I think maybe episodes eight and nine both creep a minute or two past the 60. And I think the pilot might have run a little bit long as well. Um, um, and so it just was wreaking havoc on the fact that they, you know, Silicon Valley and, um, and Mrs. Fletcher, there's, a, they're like, there are other shows in HBO um, that are appointment viewing. And, you know, uh, your little 60 minutes idea is adorable, but, um, you know, put, you, you're going to have to trade out act 90 seconds of show for, for this. And then the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze to like add that to the PDPedia sort of like. Correct. I mean, yeah. And, and it was it was going to cost money and time and resource to shoot all that stuff. To build off of that, um, going back to the HBO behind the scenes, uh, affection for behind the scenes footage to run after their, especially after their hour long drama series, you uh, seem like a person who loves to explain your work at length <laughs> and uh, <laughs> your reasonings behind it yes. and uh, what all the secrets are and uh, what everything really means. Uh, so how was that <laughs> to sort of have this 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 kind of network edict like okay now now explain what everyone just watched um, was that and for BTS you mean yeah um, and for press look I I wouldn't say that I enjoy the process of going out and talking about the show but at the same but at the same wow. time I don't wow I'm so hurtful but I'm enjoying this. No, I, I, um, it's part of the job. It's an essential part of the job. And particularly as a producer, um, like I want the actors to go out and promote the show and talk about the show. And it feels like I should do that too. But when it comes to the writing, one of the things that I've learned over time is that I don't get to sit home and grumble about my show being misunderstood. I have to go out there and in many cases defend it. 
Um, and when it gets into that territory, and I, you know, I read into your question, Libby, that you don't mean when I say explain things, it's not sort of like nobody wants me to deconstruct or demystify. Like, um, I mean, some people do. Yeah, like, do they? I mean, I think online there all there are people who want answers to every single question and want you to justify every decision you made. I mean, there's right. always going to be that. That's why we all try and turn our phones off sometime. But, but let, let me just say, when it comes to Watchmen, from the jump it wasn't an option for me to not say yes to any time anybody asked me to talk about the show because the show requires explanation, justification, and right. defense. The first line of defense was, "Why are you? what makes you think you get to do Watchmen? And then once, once I understood that I was gonna try to be prepared to answer that question to the best of my ability, nobody knew at that time that the show was gonna be about race. And I'm a white guy. Have you guys noticed? White very white guy. And now the show is about race. So I can't just be like, guys, I made a show about race. Just enjoy, you know, like that requires explanation. This is not my story to tell. And I told it anyway. So I want to, I want to explain to people why I felt compelled to tell it. And more importantly, that it ended up not being my story at all. It became our story. And we do live in a culture that benefits me tremendously not just because I'm a white guy, but because the showrunner myth is that we, the showrunners, just make these shows. And th this is Lindelof's Watchmen. And I appreciate that. And that's great. And it makes me, it's very, very good for my ego. Um, and, but it's not true. At least it doesn't feel true to, to me. The show is, is not, is, is a, is a massive collaboration. So many of the great ideas in this season of television just did not come from my head. I was there. I was smart enough to say, that's a great idea a lot of the time. And some of the good ideas came from me. A lot of bad ones came from me and they were, they were rejected and shut down. Thank God. So television is incredibly collaborative medium. I'm really proud that I get to be the showrunner of this particular iteration of Watchmen. But if I'm not out there talking about that collaboration and saying those other names, um, then I'm not doing anything to dispel the myth of 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 the of you know the, this sort of idea that the showrunner is the end all be all of the story. It just isn't true. Well, then let me ask you a little bit. I mean, let's give you this opportunity to, to talk about how you built this room and how you built a system around de-emphasizing your own white guy voice and boosting the voices of people who don't have a natural. I, I noticed that like the makeup of the room also includes a lot of like people coming from comedy backgrounds and sort of like how that sort of also fed into the making of this of this writer's room. The first two writers that I knew were going to be in that room were Jeff Jensen and myself. And the reason that Jeff needed to be in the room was he was ground zero. The first person that I went to and said, this is kind of what I want to do with Watchmen. And I already had the hooded justice idea and knew about Tulsa 21. And, um, and I wanted to present those ideas to him just through the lens of, is this a Watchmen story? Like, will the original text literally survive this level of retcon? Um, does it offend you as a Watchmen fan? Just be honest with me. And when I first pitched him the idea, he looked like I had punched him in the face and then he smiled a little. And I was like, okay, that's kind of the reaction that I'm, that I'm going for. And so we're already starting with two white guys with an encyclopedic knowledge of Watchmen and 
you know, lots of overlap in our Venn diagram of popular cultural influences, et cetera. We're kind of the same guy. We're very commonly tuned. And so I was like, I'm already starting to get worried about this thing. And then I wanted Nick Cuse to be on the show because he and I had just written a movie together. He had worked on Leftovers. He's a wonderful writer, you know, just like um, in incredible in the room, great on the page. And I was, he was available and I wanted him. So I was like, now there's three white guys that we're starting with. And so let's just start from a point of view of like, okay, we're good on that front. And then there was Tom Speziali who was going to help me run the show, who had also come in from Leftovers. And it was like, let's just, okay, that's good. We're, we're, we're full up on that regard. But it is, I think, both illegal, immoral, and irresponsible to just say, we're not going to hire any more white guys. But at the same time, what I was saying to the agents was, you need to send me people who, A, don't really have a watchman, you know, uh, affinity. They're, they're, not, they're not like dyed in the wool watchman fans. Because we need some people who don't hold this text in in, in religious sacred regard, um, or necessarily even sci-fi backgrounds. I just need great writers who you think would be simpatico uh, with me, um, and uh, you kind of know the food that I make. You've been to a couple of my restaurants now, and so um, send send scripts accordingly. And so then I just started to read lots and lots of scripts, and I've gotten to the point now where I I can't assess. Almost every script that I got was well written. They're, they're good professional writers, but I've gotten to the point now where within like eight or nine pages, I can go like, okay, this person has a great voice, and it's and it's sort of like someone that I I'm, I'm really curious to meet, and that's really the only criteria that I had. So I just went through that stack and and set up probably about twenty five meetings, and then of those twenty five writers, you know, you have a about a, a 45 minute meeting with each of them. And, and and based on that meeting, you basically are like, I wanna hire you, which is a very, it's like a little bit like speed dating just to, to, to some degree. And every meeting was different and every interaction was different. Some of the writers had a comedic background. Some of them were primarily playwrights who had a little bit of room experience. Some of them were, were TV writers room veterans. Um, uh, some of them had incredible Watchmen literacy um, some of them had knew, like had basically watched Zach's movie before the meeting. So they would just know who Dr. Manhattan was. And they were very candid about saying, I don't really know any anything about Watchmen. The one thing that all of those meetings had in common was I was able to pitch my take on Watchmen to them. Um, and I was like, if you know a lot about Watchmen, this should make sense to you. And if you don't know anything about Watchmen, it should also make sense to you. If it, if it doesn't, then I have a problem. But I talked about Tulsa 21 and I talked about Tulsa 21 as Krypton and it being the origin story for the first superhero, the first mass vigilante who was a, um, an African-American man who couldn't, who had to pretend that he was white, had to wear a mask beneath his mask because he would have been murdered um, by his racist co-workers if they had known. And, and in doing so, in hiding his race, he actually inspired a bunch of white people to do the same thing. And then ultimately, it became a white person thing, which is the story of appropriation in America writ large, but we're going to do it for superheroing. And um, I would pitch that stuff. And writers who said to me, that's amazing. Oh my God, that's going to be incredible. I did not hire. And the writers who said, I think that's cool, but I have concerns. I hired. That, that was like, you know, that was the, that was the, the fundamental 
that was the test. To stretch the metaphor, you needed some people who would come into your restaurant and not be afraid to break a couple of eggs. Well, <laughs> touche. Wow. That was a long walk. Oh my God. Did you, <laughs> were you, did you come in with that? Or? No, it happened just now naturally. See you drop that around right there. Yeah, when you mentioned restaurant, that's when I first. This is sure. the worst podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Wow. I apologize. That was good. No, it's going to make the cut. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, he edits it. I'll cut it it out. I'll see how it plays. You give it a crack. Jesus Christ. Don't encourage him. You don't like my yokes? (laughs) Now now we're going to be here. You're going to be gone. We're going to be here with him. Oh, my God. Uh, I can't pretend I don't like puns. Puns are great. Oh, Jesus Uh, Well, I wanted wanted to ask a a question that's actually been nagging my boss for a while, uh, our executive editor, Ann Donahue. The first thing she said to me when she was watching the screeners in her office was, how the hell did you get the Beastie Boys rights? Because those are so hard to do. And I wanted to expand on that to Liza Richardson in general, because Uh I'm a huge fan of hers from before and uh your relationship seems very interesting because of the um the variety of genres of music that end up in the show are just so all over the place so uh first the beastie boys so Anne can be happy and, and second just a little bit about kind of the process of choosing songs and how much are written in versus you know discovered later on i think it's the you know the 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 Eggman, um um, needle drop, which is how we affectionately refer to any music that is not composed as a needle drop, because there are these, you know, these things called record albums that have needles on them, but not, they've become hip again. So, so now, they, they now come even, with needles? Yeah, or? even the kids understand what that is. <laughs> so basically, there's two ways that the needle drops on 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 my TV shows tend to work. There weren't a lot of them on Lost. So uh, this really started on The Leftovers and Liza Richardson who is a genius and knows everything there is to know about music and just has uh, immaculate and eclectic musical tastes, um, ranging from country to classical to hip hop to rock and roll to R&B to 80s and soul and everything. You can literally just say to her, this this needs to feel like, you know, Otis Redding, but with a female vocalist and sadder, and then she'll send you eight tracks. And so sometimes... In the editing room, I will just pick a song and I will just drop it into the show. Um, and if it works, then great. In other times, I'll do that and it won't work. And I'll try another song and it won't work. And I'll try another song and it won't work. And then I'll just say, send the scene to Liza. And they will send the scene, just the uh, imagine Angela and Cal in a bar. And it's the scene where he takes his mask off. Um, and she will send back six or seven picks that she made that are cut to that picture and I'll watch them all and they'll all be amazing. And then I'll just pick what I think is the best one. So it's sort of curation inside of curation. Um, and that's the way that it works. And she kind of knows what my sensibilities are now. Sometimes I'll pick a song in the case of the beastie boys that ended episode two, like felt like the perfect needle drop. And then Liza watched the cut and just, immediately emailed and said, don't fall in love with Eggman because it can't be cleared because there's too many samples in it. It's not about the Beastie Boys. Clearing basically means that you just have to get the approval of the artist who made it to use it in the show. And then they you have to pay them, of course, and then the money is negotiated. So it's not about the Beastie Boys not wanting to license it, but they're sampling a number of other tracks inside Eggman. And, and that it would just be impossible. It's like, this is for Mott's Last Theorem. Like, the Eggman is where all music supervisors die on the hill. <laughs> and, and, and Liza has said this to me before. She said to me, it's ne- never going to happen. And like, 
most of the time she's right. Most of the time it is an impossible reach. We, we, there was a Stevie Wonder song that we wanted to use this season and we just couldn't get it um, because of the content. Um, Stevie Wonder is very particular about what his music is, what, what's happening in the scene that his music is used with. And so it was just like, it wasn't about his unwillingness to license his music. He was just like, I don't want it to be in a show where this is happening. Um, understandable. And that happened in episode six as well, uh, in the scene where, um, where Will is picked up by the cops and brought to the graveyard and, and lynched. Um, it was very hard to find any anybody who would license their music for that because they just didn't want it to be associated with that material, understandably. So Trent and Atticus wrote that piece of music, um, used to be, that sounds like it was authentically, and then they had it arranged and, and, and recorded with like a big band. So it feels like it lives right there with all the other music in that episode, but they did that in like 10 days. Anyway... Um, when it comes back to Liza. So I was like, just, can you just give it a try? And she's like, I will try, but do not get your hopes up. And then somehow she did it. Like she greased whatever palms <laughs> needed to be, to be greased, greased, greased. She just worked her magic. And she was like, we got it. We got Eggman. Oh my God. So wow. um, that's how it happened. Like, I don't know how she did it, um, we haven't been sued, so I take her at her word. That's where, was, your, that's where your 60 minutes money went. It was legit. Yeah, <laughs> it went into Eggman, that's for sure. I need to just take a minute to defend Lost here because it has one of my favorite, it has one of my favorite needle drops of all time with the mamas and the papas. Yeah, um, uh, that, that, that's actually just, um, make your own kind of music is just Mama Cass as a solo oh, artist. Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry, I spoke out of turn, please. But, uh, but I, I, I picked that song. We didn't, ha we didn't have a music supervisor on Lost because we didn't need one because there weren't enough needle drops to justify the expenditure. But on Leftovers um, and Watchmen, I'd say it feels like off the top of my head, half of the music in the show is, is needle drops and half of it is score. Um, so, so that'll vacillate from episode to episode. But I think if like you, you took out a stopwatch for, this, for these nine episodes, you'd find like... Maybe it's 55% Trent and Atticus, 45% Liza. Um, so it's, and the two things have to play well with one another. That's the other thing. So Trent and Atticus definitely need, wanted to know what the needle drops were before they started writing the music to make sure that it was all of a piece. And then they would occasionally riff on some of those ideas like Careless Whisper and Life on Mars. Trent and Atticus did their own spin on those pieces of music. And it was like, I can't believe like, I'm, I'm supposed to pretend like this is not a big deal that that Trent Raz Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing this. Um, but uh, I got to be the first person to hear that music. And you can imagine, you know, you can imagine. I don't experience joy often in this job, but, <laughs> but the music <laughs> brought me a lot of joy. Us too. Yeah. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. That, that you mentioned sort of the, the layered samples on Eggman and most of Paul's Boutique. I wonder what that, if that's why Paul's Boutique is not that renowned an album. And I mean, there are some people who really love it, but like it's not known the worldwide, like licensed ill or ill communication. Right. Because the Dust Brothers production was such layer upon layer you're going deep right now deep beastie boys <laughs> deeper than i can there's a lot of sampling on like intergalactic though too. there is yeah and, but you and you like it must be something done having to do with the out actual album promotion that they yeah. didn't they didn't they only put that video out for hey ladies i think yes so i think maybe that's it there weren't we should probably we should probably table this and do it in our beastie boys pod <laughs> 
Speaking of alternate podcasts, yes. <laughs> boys. Uh, no, like uh, I love I love segments like that because Leo is here as the rube in our uh, television industry podcast. That's, That's why you're wearing those overalls. Now he just <laughs> that, that explains that that yeah. that piece of no, grass no. in your teeth. Yeah, the rube has a question if it's Great. okay. Yeah, by all means. Um, so Jeez. aside from the source material, obviously. That by the way, are you aware that Lube Man has a sidekick called Rube Man? <laughs> yes. This is it. Finally. He just stands there and goes, "Did you see him slide <laughs> into that sewer grate? <laughs> oh my God! Holy that, moly! That's one slippery son of a gun." <laughs> Oh my God! They too slippery. They can't catch them. We're getting dangerously close to doing this for real. This is a good audition. This is a good audition. Later. Um, but I was gonna say, aside from uh, the source material, the the canon, and you've mentioned this a lot, uh, Tanahisi Coates, between the world and me, and the case reparations. What were sort of the other guiding influences when you were setting out to to actually write? And script the the nine episodes. I think anything and everything. I mean, you know, all the movies and television shows that I'm sort of absorbing at any one time are informing what I'm working on now. And particularly, like th what I love about TV right now is people are sort of like handing the baton off to one another. So I was inspired by The Sopranos, and then you know someone else is in is inspired by Lost, and then and then the thing that they did actually inspires me. So you know, certainly what Noah Hawley was doing on on Fargo and more specifically Legion was informing some of like, we were really interested in how absurd Watchmen could be. Um, and I think that when we watched what Sam was doing on Mr. Robot, particularly like doing concept episodes that Alf was a character in, and you're essentially going like, and that was, that was not just a gimmick, like that was actually woven into the tapestry of the fundamental storytelling. So, but it's crazy that that happened on television. Um, and so that was an idea that we started playing around with in the international assassin episodes of The Leftovers. And I wanted to continue where it's sort of like, when, when someone first says in the writer's room, Adrian Veidt is launching dead clones from a giant catapult into the sky, Everyone laughs and is like, yeah, but really? And then and then I go, but really? No, we can we do that? And then you start going like, well, you could get away with that on on Legion. Like, and if Legion can do it, well, I don't know. Like, is, is that really happening on Legion or not? And so these these the common vernacular that we have in the writer's room are the television shows that we're all watching kind of in present time. Um, so I think that stuff was definitely informing us. And I will also say probably number one with the bullet as it relates to those shows was Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta had a massive impact on this season of Watchmen. And uh, I can't say enough about Donald Glover and Hiro Mirai and everybody who's involved with that show, but like it's a, to it, it's a masterpiece of tone. And more importantly, like its ability to um, surprise and bend rules and do episodes about invisible cars that feel like they're not going to have payoffs. And then the payoff is happening kind of in the corner of the frame, you know, not, not, not to mention, you know, some of the stuff that, that, uh, that others have spoken uh, about much more eloquently than I ever could, um, in, in its latest season, but it's like that show is pure art. And so, we were like, we can't rip off Atlanta because Atlanta is its own specific thing. But it was definitely something that we like Watchmen is not the Beatles nor the Beach Boys. But I always remember there was this kind of give and take between Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's where one 
that, you know, they were, it was a snake eating its own tail where the Beatles and the Beach Boys were both listening to each other's music going like, wait a minute, you can, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I feel like that's happening in television right now. And sort of like our creative IQ as storytellers is going up exponentially as a result of, you know, that the bravado in storytelling is something that the audience is accepting and is, 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 um, it, the, the sort of, we're all standing around in, 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 in a circle and someone has to go into the middle of the circle and do a new move until they do that crazy, like triple backflip. You didn't know it was possible. Once you've seen it executed, then you're like, I've got to do that. And then I've got to do something different. Um, that's, it's really an exciting time to be telling stories that said, I would like to formally announce my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> this was your smile. Yeah, that's you, you it. it. There you go. You oh, wow. It. Fucking, you are on fire. You're no rude, man. That's uh, a, that's I'm a, a deep Brian that's the, Wilson. That's the joke within the room. Yeah. There's, he's, there's no I just said I'm not, an, I'm not an industry insider yeah. like they are. That's, I come again, from, I come from a different world. Very weird. Well, yeah, you know, it's so weird. Adults. Like, it's so weird talking about other shows um, that you draw influence from because Leo hasn't watched The Leftovers. And <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm a rude. That's wow. Why that's why you're the rude. That's where it came from. Luckily, we're going to have a podcast where I remedy that. Yeah, we're we're establishing a, a spin-off podcast from this one where the whole purpose is just to get Leo to watch <laughs> the leftovers and we're gonna talk about it every week and, and it's a shame blind, him. It's a, it's a blind spot it, in so. my in my pop culture. Guys, uh, guys you'll get there. Do you have a title for the podcast? It's called Doggy Bag. And it's oh it, my god. I came up with is it really? side unseen. <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> I have yeah, he doesn't <laughs> even really know the deeper references, but uh, I think it'll work out well. Unbelievable. <laughs> but before we let you go, since this is now airing a week, the week after the finale has aired, uh, you haven't seen reactions to it, but you've had the whole season to kind of absorb how people are feeling about it and for you to kind of sit with the story as it's airing and watch people absorb it. So this is the obligatory, how are we feeling about season two right now? Is this something that you've discussed, been approached by? thinking about obviously but the ratings seem good fans seem happy hbo has been an incredible partner and and from the beginning i said to them i wanted to design this show as to have a beginning middle and end because that going again once again back to this list about what made watchmen watchmen was that it unlike all other comic books that where it's essentially like batman is never going to end spider-man is never going to end superman never going to end the avengers are never going to end even when you see a movie called endgame you're basically like we're two years away from the next movie called the avengers so you know Maybe you just should have called it Avengers Game, yeah. guys. Anyway, <laughs> it'll watch, be, there'll be new Avengers probably. And, and I realize the uh, this is an irony, but I realize that um, the complete and total ridiculousness of me saying that what made the original Watchmen great was that it had an ending, and therefore it should have been left alone. That said, um, I wanted this season to have an ending. I am unqualified to. Uh, predict what what the audience will make of our ending. Um, I can tell you right now that it's not, you know, it, it's a kind of ending that I like that has some degree of ambiguity around it. Um, the original Watchmen ended with a question. Um, uh, is Rorschach's journal going to go public? Is the, is the conspiracy that Adrian Veidt so meticulously crafted going to be exposed? I leave it entirely in your hands. End of story. It, and, and that's Alan Moore saying, um, not that it doesn't matter, but the story ends here. Because the story of whether Adrian Veidt gets exposed is not interesting um, or not a story that I'm interested in telling. 
So I'll say the story that I wanted to tell was represented entirely in these nine episodes. And with the exception of the identity of Lube Man, um, that, that was the only purposeful. We knew who Lube Man was, and we also knew we weren't going to reveal it um, uh, directly in the show, maybe indirectly, but directly. But everything else, we're sort of like, we're going to answer the main questions of the show. Um, and uh, and then the show is going to end. And so I do believe that that we achieved that. Um, what what the artistic merits of the show are or aren't is, 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 is subjective to the viewer, but I'm sort of like, there's no part of me that feels like, Oh man, if we should have done a 10th, a 10th episode or, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that idea and we'll put it in season two. There are purposeful omissions in the first season of the show, like Dan Dryberg, for example. I've been pretty candid about the fact that I felt like we could use three OG watchmen, um, Vite, Lori, Dr. Manhattan, but, but a fourth would have tipped the scales too far into sequel territory and out of original territory. And so we didn't do it, but Dan is alive and well and in federal prison and probably waiting to have a season of Watchmen focused on him. I just don't know what that season would be. I got to be the babysitter of Watchmen for this period of time in my life for these two years. And, but I, but Watchmen's not my baby. Um, and I think that someone else could come along next year, five years from now, and and do their spin on Watchmen. I think the True Detective, while Nick Pizzolatto's creation, is bigger than Nick Pizzolatto. And when I first heard that someone other than the Cone Brothers was doing Fargo, it offended me personally. And then I watched what Noah did. And it felt like it was Fargo, and it also felt like it was Noah. So I think that Watchmen is not D- Damon Lindelof's Watchmen. It never was. In fact, what made it great was the collaboration. And so am, am I going to do another season of Watchmen? Right now, it doesn't feel like I am. Um, but I'll also, at some point, my antenna will go back up. And if the idea comes, I would embrace it fully. Um, but I can't just do a second season of Watchmen because that's what what everybody expects there to be. There has to be precedent for sometimes it's just nine episodes and that's cool. There shouldn't be any more unbelievable. Um, we all processed the first season of Big Little Lies as a story with a beginning, middle and end. That story ended with immense satisfaction. And then everybody who was involved was like, we want to come and do more. We want to do more Big Little Lies. And so, But they didn't know that at the time that the first season ended. So hopefully I'll have the benefit of having time to think about what I want to do next. I don't want to rule anything out. Out HBO has been very respectful of of where my head is at. And we've been talking about this internally since I first pitched them the show. Um, I think it's their desire for there to be more Watchmen. It's my desire for there to be more Watchmen. It's just wh- whether or not I should be involved with it is the, is the, is the question at play. And I, I don't know right now. Keep what if I was like, I'm going to so, do another season of Leftovers, though? I mean, I mean, it just I means really I hope you announce. Just means Doggy Dog Bag gets gets a little longer. <laughs> I would hope that that would outrage you, though. I'd like, be a little. I'd be extremely worried. Yeah, I would be the writer that was in the room saying, "I don't. I have questions. There's I, a lot of things to worry about." Some, here. you know, I mean, like I feel like I'm obsessed with Twin Peaks. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. I think David Lynch is brilliant. But if he said, I'm going to come and do a fourth season of Twin Peaks, I'd be like, I'm really disappointed and I'm going to watch it. But it's like the way that the third season ended to me was like so great. But talk about ambiguity. 
But see, I, I completely agree with that idea. The, the the thing that I always defend is when, like you kind of described with Big Little Lies, and this is what I said even when Big Little Lies happened, was that if the creatives involved, if the people who are telling the story get together and say, there is more story to tell. Mm-hmm. I know we ended this well. I know we wrote this to a conclusion. But we went away. We thought about it. We couldn't shake X, Y, and Z. And we have an idea that we're really excited about. If those people, including David Lynch, if he decides he wants to come back and do it, then I trust him more than anybody else in the world. But I think that there is there is something else to consider, which is, you know, I'd say half of the time those people are wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly examples of when they've been proven wrong. But uh, I, I, I hear you and I agree with you. And um, uh, like, I, I do feel like one of the reasons that Fleabag is understandably getting all the love and adulation that it deserves, I think, is because Phoebe is saying no more Fleabag. Like... Um, and maybe there will be, who knows? Like I, that, that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of thing where if she decides to do it or not do it, everybody's going to be cool with it. But one of the things that gives it its power and its resiliency is knowing that, you know, nobody would have ever thought or imagined that you would do two seasons of a show that receives that level of adulation and acclaim. And then, and then you walk away, um, like we've seen limited series that were just one, you know, there's not going to be another season of Chernobyl. Or is Probably. there? God, yeah. you, you, you might know. You've been talking to Craig. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some things by definition are one and done, but the idea of just doing two seasons of something that worked that well, that is incredibly rare. And now, and now Phoebe has demonstrated that that can be done. And I do feel, I, I, I remember when I first started talking about the fact that Lost should have an ending in season one, I was talking about that and everybody was like, you're a crazy person. That's never going to happen. Are, are you looking at the ratings of the show? And I was like, but the, but the ratings aren't going to last forever. And if we want to go out on top, it's a mystery show. It has a beginning, middle, and end. We're in, in sort of uncharted territory, but there needs to be an ending. And nobody believed me until the middle of season three when the situation sort of, they, they actually started to see these things that I was predicting. The show was running in place. It couldn't move forwards. The audience started getting more and more frustrated with it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that, you know, we should trust this. We should trust the chef to say, you know, we're, we're out of food or I'm not cooking that. You know, I, I went to the farmer's market and the strawberries were, were not, you know, uh, to my liking. So that we're, we're not doing that dessert tonight. You know, you kind of have to have to have to have faith in, in the, the person who's making the food. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for bringing back the restaurant uh, <laughs> metaphor. I'm just so to- hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even yeah, talk about, we it. haven't talked about succession at all. <laughs> and I think Petey has a lot of Greg energy. That's all I can say. There's Petey has, has big Craig, uh, big, big cousin Greg, Greg. Big Greg energy. energy. Love Greg. Greg, <sighs> so Greg the motherfucking egg. What, what the fuck? What? You know what? Let's end it there. We got to end it there. Well, you can't make a omelet. Oh, without breaking some Gregs. Breaking some Gregs. <laughs> oh boy, Next I think that's week. it. We did it. I think, I, think it. I should probably tell you, without spoiling anything, that you can't make an omelet is a major, major thing in the finale of Watchmen. We you, figured. You can't. Yes. You know, can't, can't Lou, make. Lou Gossett likes those skeletons in the closet. You know, likes those euphemisms. Again, I don't, I don't theorize anymore. So I'm just gonna. I just want Angela to sit. I just want her to sit down and have the waffles. Just eat the waffles. Wow. Well, guys, what an interview! A lot of egg references. 
throughout that interview. Okay, but how many guessed. of those were you? I think only two of them were me. As I think we discussed while yeah, while we while Libby and I were watching you watch the finale, the egg puns are now my favorite the my favorite moment of my life that's ever been recorded. You and Damon just going back and forth with the egg puns. <laughs> My favorite moment of my life was just watching Leo watch the finale. That's like it was, it was so, it that and like watching Leo record the podcast. Um, there is just such a pure joy in in how Leo loves Watchmen, how Leo loved talking to Lindelof, and how much Lindelof loved talking to Leo. At least uh, one of us, which is hurtful but uh fine that's fine <laughs> i thought he enjoyed talking to all three of us am I, you would think am I oblivious so. yeah <laughs> is that what bit. i'm a rube about <laughs> yeah that's that's the rube that's you're, literally you're the magic. only thing you're a rube about yeah rube man only applies to that notion now yeah exactly um, uh, no i i i do think that kind of the relationship that you have with the show is kind of exactly what he was hoping for and that it's it's a very positive invested and thoughtful context in which you put everything that's happening within that finale and kind of watching that happen real time was was pretty fun but well i think we're gonna be we're gonna be gone for the next couple of weeks in morning gonna, gonna be re-watching watching in the series over and over again uh but i think when we come back we're probably gonna have a golden globes predictions episode mm, it's yeah. gonna be fun it is i think it will be fun i think it'll be interesting to see how all of that's gonna shake out um it's going to be a fucking mess, and I can't wait for it. And I will be keeping score, and we will have a, a show afterwards to see who won. Oh, fuck. <laughs> not going to be me. I'll just tell you right now. I'll tell one, you that right now, too. This one is <laughs> uh, Rube Man over here is going to take the title. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> ben, should we ask Libby? We should have had Damon ask Libby. Oh. Really missed an opportunity there. <sighs> Libby, do you have a show on Quibi yet? No, I don't have a fucking show on Quibi yet. It's not my fault. I assume they're taking the holidays off. If Damon had asked you, would you have had a different answer? No, it probably would have been just as violent and <laughs> and antagonistic. But So maybe it's better we didn't have him ask me. All right. Well, with that, uh, we come to the end of the episode. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about her TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brideson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue. You can find us at Twitter at A Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review. I think it helps. We'll find out if it helps eventually. <laughs> this is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. Oh, it's light to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>